Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. If you're very, very stupid, how can you possibly realize that you're very, very stupid? You'd have to be relatively intelligent to realize how stupid you are. In fact, for me, existentialism is an invigorating philosophy. Ty Webb, Heavy Longmire, Gustav Mateblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato. Enlighten me. Just ease back and let him finish. Mm. I'm done. All right. Well, how about those witticisms? Where do those go? Is the well done gone dry? Don't have anything, man. Well, I will do the one we were talking about offline just a moment ago. Okay. Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. There you go. Cycle of life. There you go. Hakuna Matata. Never seen that movie. I think we're in it's the Dumont right now. Oh, look at you. It's Dunstan. We found him. We found his body as skeleton. Yeah. Well, it's Can You Hear Me, the podcast where three guys talk exclusively about William F. Buckley, Jr. This I wonder if he ever had a Mexican squirt. I doubt it. Although he did sail down to Mexico uh, before the 68 Republican National Convention. So Cancun, I believe. Maybe he did. Yeah. You know, last time I was in Cancun, I noticed some uh, poor LDS missionaries knocking on the doors trying to convert, convert, which I would think would be a hard sell in a historically... Uh, South America is the largest LDS growing population. I know it in is, but I would think it'd be a hard sell. There's a lot of LDS activity, you know, archaeologically, since a lot of, of the cities in the Book of Mormon are situated in what is now Central America. So there's a lot of archaeological involvement down there. So there you go. That's your fact for the day. Interesting. Thank you for that. You know, today I was helping out my. Uh, my two sons, they, I have two sons and a daughter. And the two sons, they're in junior high and involved in the garden club. Huh? So they had a little work day and they're trying to turn over this plot. And I guess they'd had fill dirt when they built the junior high there. So there were some chunks of concrete and stuff. So we're raking and, you know, removing some of the bigger pieces of rock. And I'm watching my oldest. They're not hard workers. I think that, you know, it'll they'll get there eventually, but they don't have their father's strong puritanical work ethic. Good times have bred. Maybe, to tie yeah. it back. They are my sons. There you go. And they... Hijinks will ensue. Well, they're, they've got some spirit to them, but they like to talk. Huh. Interesting. That may come as a shock to you. So I'm watching my oldest spread out some facts. As Pontificate. Pontificate. And I chuckled to myself and think about it, you know, and I, you know, although he was talking to the ladies a lot more, and well, I think he has the potential to be much more of a ladies' man than his dad ever was. Yeah. Hey, now. As we were leaving. He's got his mama's personality. Yes. And that's scary. Drawing, drawing up to the house, he made a statement that, you know, I think that the uh, farmland in America is not so great. <laughs> well. Pretty and, bold statement. And Come I on. said... I don't think you know, I don't think seventh I don't think you know about what you're speaking about. Well, we only have ten percent of American land is farmland and I'm like, well, where'd you get that number? And if it is ten percent, we feed a surplus to the rest of the world, you know, so we're doing pretty good. But I think that ten percent number is pretty far off. Has he not learned about the breadbasket of America? Well, my point was and I've probably been guilty of this a time or two. <laughs> We're um, using that all for cheap fuel now. Yeah. <laughs> and high fructose It's all dent syrup. corn. <laughs> yeah. Boy, he pegged out on that one on that dent corn. Hit that one hard. Anyway. More pegging. <laughs> less pegging. This is not Myra Breckenridge. 
with your pegging rape scene. <laughs> but speaking with pure, wholehearted, emphatic belief in what he's saying, with this 10% number he pulled out of his ass somewhere, <laughs> I thought, yeah, I've done that too. Well, speaking of that, since I brought it up a couple episodes before and you guys have squeezed me out on it, I wanted to finally take an opportunity to discuss the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, is this... was this Dunning-Kruger. Is that wait, Freddy's cousin? No, I think that's an H.P. Lovecraft story, isn't it? It's neither, but it could be both. Have you ever read much H.P. Lovecraft? I was reading H.P. Lovecraft last night. Right. Well, I, tell us more. I was reading The Call of Cthulhu. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. That's the one that opens in the cemetery? No. Okay. That's the one that opens with the nephew that's going through his uh, great uncle's effects, and he's been reading about madness going on. It's okay. not. I mean, it's, it's a standard one. If you want, I'm trying to think, the dreams of, what's that one called? My favorite one, and you're making me, go ahead. I'll, we'll talk about Lovecraft later. Go okay. ahead, Ty. The, <laughs> what a wonderful lead-in. I think you guys will appreciate, if not enjoy, the phenomenon known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Tell which, us more. Which, interesting, the backstory on it is kind of interesting, too. You guys would appreciate that it's kind of named after this. Dunning and Miller, isn't that the ticket? It's very closely tied in. I think the guy's name was Wheeler, who was a bank robber who had the idea that he thought since lemon juice was sometimes used in making like invisible ink Mm -hmm. that he could rub his face with lemon juice and when he robbed banks his face would be invisible to any kind of security camera this sounds like something i'd cook up when i was six security camera so this is recent times i guess so i know it has to do with this guy wheeler rubbing lemon juice on his face thinking that that would make him invisible to any you know Maybe it was photographs or security cameras or whatever okay. that he, you know, his face wouldn't be seen because of that. But the premise behind it is that this phenomenon or idea that those who are novices or have low competency in a certain area overestimate their competency about something. And yeah. those, those who are knowledgeable about a certain area tend to expect others to be of equal knowledge and even underestimate their expertise in a certain area, and that it falls along a spectrum to where those who are highly intelligent about a certain subject tend to underestimate their own knowledge about it, mm-hmm. mostly based on this idea of like metacognition, where you think about how much you know about something, thinking about thinking kind of thing. This might as well be called the Gustav Montebleck. Uh, okay. <laughs> this sounds like me. I'm pegged out on the spectrum right now. This, is, you know, the other end of the spectrum would describe those people like Einstein, who would say that, you know, no, that's where I'm at. That's right, I'm exactly, saying. exactly. Where he's realizing how little he actually knows mm-hmm. about the universe and is humbled by that mm-hmm. and in all of that. Versus the other end of the spectrum is much more of what we see today of those who are which we do on this podcast all the time, who are fully willing to pontificate on things and present as if they have expertise about something, truly believing that they have... Kind of like somebody's talking right now. Some competency in it, exactly. But they're overestimating their like expertise or knowledge. Maybe that might wow, be an example. Wow, he's got to get that in there. But the interesting thing about it is that it doesn't really fall on intelligence lines, it's not really about intelligence, it's more of a cognitive bias to where like we naturally feel like that we know more about something that we do and then we sort of interpret everything that we learn after that through this understanding that we know something about it. Okay, yeah. So you, you tend to be biased towards thinking that you kind of have this down or understand this and then anything that might one of those counteract where, that or be counterfeit to that, that you you would tend to neglect that, you yeah, know, like confirmation like, bias type Yeah, I can change the spark plugs in my car. Right. I had a 92 Jeep that I used to change the spark plugs in, so there's no reason why I can't do it on that. Kind of right. 
think that I know more than what I actually do. Well, I, well, and I, I don't think like, it's as much that. I think it's more. See, I think that's just an, the idea that I can do. I can put my mind to. I can do it. I think that's more what that is. What that's more. I mean, what he's describing with the with the uh, invisible lemon juice thing. That's a a whole nother level of. Well, that's an extreme. That's the extreme side of it. Yeah, but I mean, it's very prevalent in society today because we have access to all these things online. Bits of and that, that's right. So what a person does is they get a bit. You know, they watch a five-minute YouTube cl- clip on something. And then they feel like they have an understanding of it, and then they see themselves as somewhat of an expert in it right. and are willing to pontificate about it. And argue about it. Argue about it. They feel like they're an expert in it. They overestimate how much they actually understand about it, and yeah. then they just build upon that and build upon that without actually having any real knowledge, right. you know, a depth of knowledge about the subject. And, I mean, I think that that's going back to, like, the difference between – what sort of got bastardized from the Buckley-Vidal debates to the way political pundancy does now. I mean, I think that's the way media is kind of set up now. Right. Is that there's, there's plenty of positions. Right. And there's plenty of positions to be filled by people that are willing to present themselves as experts on subjects that can, don't have to go any longer than about three minutes on it. Yeah. And certainly don't have to delve to the depths that Vidal or Buckley would well, about what's, a certain what's the subject. What are the studies on? I know there's been recent studies on. You know, you can hold a person's attention for was it like eight minutes or something like that. That would be pushing it. Yeah, yeah I mean probably time. more about four. Right. And so we get our information in, and news coverage knows this now. Well, I mean, the whole entertainment sector knows this now, sitcoms, everything else. We get stuff in four- to five-minute bursts. Yeah. It's, you know, Same lots for- of information, but limited information, and commercials are geared like that, too. And x Hamster. <laughs> right. When's the last time you sat down and watched a whole movie? <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of bursts going on. You're, you're not watching a, you're not watching a Johnny Holmes doing a uh, there's not the, a lot of delayed uh, gratification a as a, anymore. As a private eye in, in eruption, that's one of his classic films you've always told me about. Uh, okay. <laughs> or Dick Man and Throbbing. So, <laughs> so uh, that's a good one. I can't even hold my attention for four minutes. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, a lot of quick explosions going yeah. on there. Oops, no, but, I mean, me off. what's interesting about it too is that people are there when, which this goes back to the metacognition part of it about thinking about your own thinking is that people are unaware that this is going on. So you're you're not aware of your own level of incompetency mm-hmm. about a subject, which leads to feeling more confident in it. And that carries over to, like, decision-making, to where people are – people with less competency about a subject tend to be more confident that they're correct about the subject. Right. And thus, Just like Sean Hannity. Okay. See, wow. Again, with the, this Somebody's is very, got a hard on for Sean Hannity. He's very Hannity-focused all of a sudden. But, I mean, I think you certainly see that in political pundancy. That's right. what you're seeing, right? People right. that are, you know, highly confident of their – knowledge about certain subjects of which they're likely, you know, very incompetent about the depths of the actual subject that they're talking right. about. But that, you know, that's where it gets to be scary as far as decision making is that something that you're, you know, you're not very confident in, I mean, competent at, but highly co- confident that you are competent at it and quick to make a decision based on that. Yeah. Well, and two, and like Sean Hannity. <laughs> Our <laughs> In our, it's yeah, kinda, it's kind of like the ER doctor syndrome, to where they don't have time to make anything other than quick decisions. Right. It's kind of like the thin slicing that Gladwell talks about. You know, to where you make you're able to make these quick decisions based on these heuristics that, if they're incorrect, it can lead you to a lot of you know incorrect judgments. Mm-hmm. But that when you're in positions to where you have to make quick decisions, you're highly reliant on these heuristics that you've developed which a lot of times are based on incorrect information or incompetence that you're not aware of. Right. So you're, you know, you're making these quick decisions and on things. No, nothing more dangerous than 
Sean Hannity. Unknown incompetence. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's where bad, bad decisions get made. Yeah. Well, and it also speaks to where I think that's why you see those who are highly educated or have a high degree of expertise about a certain subject, they are less dogmatic, mm -hmm. less confident, less certain. Because they have some understanding about how little they actually know. You know, there's kind of that curve you go through in anything. You know, that anything right. that you're developing expertise in, at the beginning you sort you feel like you don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Then you quickly feel like that you know everything about it. Right. And then only if you stick with it and continue to explore do you realize how little you actually knew. Right. And then you continue to grow in your knowledge about it. And then as your knowledge grows you have more respect for that knowledge and you're less confident yeah. and, you know, certain about your own knowledge about the subject and yeah. realize how much there is out there to actually know about. Yeah. It. But a lot of people start at that, stop at that initial point. Because they think they're done. At that that's point. right. And then these days, there's plenty of opportunities to make a career out of that. Yes. And there's more opportunities to get stuck in that initial phase because you have the opportunity to gain these bits of knowledge mm -hmm. that sort of feed into that initial competency stage. I just wonder, I'd like to see a, a study in this generation coming into the workforce now. I think it would be a great study for this. Follow them for like 20 years. You're talking about people making a career out of it. Because there's going to come a point in that career when they realize that they don't know near what they think they know. And... To see how many of them stick with whatever career it is, whether it be politics, whether it be public relations, whether it be, you know, whatever it be. Or will they be focused enough on bullshitting their way through life and stick with it? Or will they want to have some kind of meaningful, right? some kind of meaningful life, you know? Not to say that their life hadn't been meaningful, but like, man, this didn't, I hadn't even... I don't know what I think. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's where a, a sense of fulfillment. I, I, guess I think that kind of gets into two different things, though. So I think that sense of fulfillment is not necessarily tied to personal growth along any path of knowledge, necessarily. Like, you could continue to, to grow, but n still not be personally fulfilled if that's not what's going to scratch that itch. Right. I know for myself... I've seen that curve happen in my own profession where I thought I'm really just getting by on the skin of my teeth to start, and I hit a plateau where I thought, I got this shit figured out. Why don't they let me run this damn company? And then over time, and now just about on a daily basis, and part of it's I've expanded my what Field. I do, right? but I know more and more how little I know. Yeah. And not just about... The actual piece I do, but the bigger picture. I see how the pieces fit together, but I know that at any moment I'm going to run into something that I don't have an answer for right at my fingertips that I'm going to have to work towards. You don't have Google? Your... The stuff that I that I do is not in Google. Huh. But okay. I think that position, and you've probably experienced this, is a much more peaceful position to be in, which is ironic in that Peaceful in the sense of that realizing, having some understanding that you, that there's still a lot that you don't know and that you're sort of are on the journey of knowing kind of thing. Yes. Versus the distress that I think a lot of people experience of not realizing that the distress that they're experiencing is because of not realizing you don't know what you don't know. No, absolutely. And not only on a professional level, but even on a personal, philosophical, right. moral, you know, level of why a lot of people don't, you know, push past the idea of why do I believe what I believe? Yeah. Oh, that, I think that's an excellent point. You know, and right. that, because that to to actually if you want to actually To me that's fulfillment. If you want to explore what it means to believe something, that means that you have to be willing to face the idea of not only why do I believe what I believe, but what does it mean to believe that, and then how do I know what I know to mm -hmm. be true. Right. The visions. Right. And then you have to go through the exercise of actually working through some of that. Right. Which 
sometimes comes out as changing your mm. beliefs mm -hmm. or your beliefs progressing, but at least having some idea about why what what is really at the root or the core of what you believe, and do you really know why you believe that, and do you believe what's behind it, yeah, to be true what it you know do you what is the evidence that that's true that kind of thing, and that's much more of an ex, you know self exploration oh absolutely that creates a lot of anxiety, yeah, because there's a lot of unknown you know we we feel much more comfortable, sort of superficially comfortable. In, with certainty, when certainty is really, you know, kind of a veil that we create to give ourselves comfort. Right, right. So as we as a society, because I see the high, you know, I mean, existentialism starts in the late 1800s. And I, to me, the writing pretty much goes through the 60s. But does existentialism, because we've gotten comfortable as a society with all of our creature comforts, have we moved past existentialism? Do people think about their existence like they used to? I think we're much more prone to be superficial because of our context. And then I would also because ask, of our comforts. I would also ask, though. I mean, we are not. I, I would. I mean, we think, but I would not put myself at a thinker level. You know, when we right. talk about all these, yeah. you know, heroes of ours. But even we. In our reading and discussions, I, we would fit into that existentialistic mode at times. Not all the time, but right. we certainly have delved in there. But even at the high point when post-war writers are doing it, and there were people just like us reading and talking about it, the general populace wasn't reading about that. Yeah. Nobody – how many people were reading Dostoevsky in 1890? Not that many. Or Sartre, or right, Nietzsche, right. you know, at any given point, population-wise, percentage-wise, it's probably been a constant, and it's a relatively low percentage. So I think maybe the masses are more comfortable, but I don't know if that existentialistic writing or that searching still exists now. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it's it's something that is much more done in retrospect than in the moment a lot of times. And that that's why people, a lot of people have distress that is unexplained to them. I mean, I think yes. like the whole idea that like Heidegger has that we, you know, that we're, one of the reasons that we have all this unexplained distress and anxiety that expresses itself in all these ways that we, we don't really delve down to the core of is that we're not willing to actually... Do the work. Well, we're not willing to face... What, like you're saying, what is the existential elephant in the room? Right. That we're not willing to actually face the existential threat that we that we all face. Instead, we we treat it as something that is either in the that's in the abstract, or that's something that we don't want to approach or hide from or defend against. But we don't face it in a very practical, pragmatic way, and then come to peace with it. Well, and two, you talked about, you know, from the existential movement from the late 1800s and through the 60s, and I think in that point in time, if you were faced with that distress, and you either had to keep with that or, you know, face that and confront it and move to that next plane, if you will, Right now... To some degree, you can take medication to fix that. True. Well, and people throughout, I mean, you know, throughout, I mean, all to of To fix the distress. It's not going to, well, to fix the symptoms of the distress. It's right. not going to fix the distress. But, but, I mean, I think it's a part of human nature that throughout oh, history. Oh, absolutely. People have always had to been pushed into facing absolutely. the existential threat. And that's and part of like what. That's where these writings come from is somebody, and luckily at that particular point in time, there was a thinker who could put into words right. what was actually going on in in that mind, whether development of a theory or just essays. Right. Well, you know? I mean, just like we were talking about before, we're just like we're all we're all prone to have to be pushed into actually facing that. We're not living in a culture now to where we are pushed towards that the way in even to the extent that the way that the Vietnam culture was mm. in facing an imminent existential threat mm -hmm. to where 
people were much more likely to have to face the thought of their own life ending very yeah. quickly because yeah. of something that was going on. Or the specter of imminent nuclear war. Right. right. Like, yeah, I mean, that you know, we, even with the Cold War, to the extent that there was kind of a hanging existential right. cloud over the culture that, I mean, we still tried to neglect it and, you know, ignore it as much as possible, but it's much much easier to do that now. Right. And it permeated, it's much easier to feel invincible now. It yeah. permeated popular literature at the time. I mean, you have Neville's On the Beach, which right. is a classic. Even Lord of the Flies starts off with a nuclear yeah. explosion by Golding. Don't uh, forget Red Dawn. Well, yeah, John Milius's classic Red Dawn. Great Powers Booth. The Great Powers Booth. We're doing a whole Red Dawn episode at some point. Okay. And a whole Powers Booth. And a whole Powers Booth episode. I, I tried to track down to see, like... The Great Patrick Swayze. The Dirty Dead Patrick Swayze. <laughs> that was his high point. The Great C. Thomas Howe. Yeah. Of Soul Man fame. Yep. Yes. And uh, uh, what was her name? Jennifer uh, Grey and Leah, Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. Yeah. yeah, she was in that one. And the Great Ben Johnson. He this was the... Pre-gold medal. Guy that's right. He's the guy, he's the guy that's at the gas station no, gave him the guns, No, he? he's the rancher that they go and they get the girls from. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And he gives them radio. Harry Dean Stanton was Charlie Sheen and Patrick Swayze's dad. He's okay. in the concentration yeah, camp. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. in the great Paris, Texas. And, yes, and the great You know, Paris. I've never seen that. It's It was available at the video store where yeah, we grew up. Yeah, yeah. Right. Not one for the kids. Yeah, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, the use of medication now to alleviate those symptoms of the distress. Right. I've mentioned this website before, and actually Gordo's talked about it, The Art of Manliness. Yeah. yeah. I can't think of the guy's get, name. Do you get a free brute sample every time you uh, mention it? Uh, maybe. Maybe a Stetson. A few years ago, he did a a series of articles about... Back in the 1800s and early 1900s, they just called it the Black Dog, which was this funk. Dread. This it was also on Led Zeppelin IV. Depre- this depression. And so, and he documents that, you know, throughout human history, this sense of distress, this depression, if you will, has, you know, affected mankind. And it, you know, during the 1600s, 1700s, even partially through the 1800s, that was looked at as it wasn't looked down on, right? Like we do. It was it was almost a mark of intelligence, right? To your point of you either have to face it, right? And if you don't, you're just I mean, go mad or kill yourself. One, I mean, that was kind of the thing. But he talked about you know very famous figures throughout history that had these you know horrible bouts of depression and fought depression. Yeah. And it was interesting to see just how society has, you know, post-World War II, you know, men didn't admit that kind of stuff. No, no. You know. Well, the way uh, things are now, the way society's gone, too, is that we have, we've mastered, I mean, we've always been good at it, but we've mastered the art of distraction. Yes. And it's been. And we have many more distractions now. That's right. And we. We've not only mastered the art of distraction, but now we have so many more we've mastered tools the art of, at our disposal. We've mastered the art of making distractions. That's right. Well, and we have we have a lower opportunity for mortality at any given moment. Yes. Than we ever have at any other yeah. point in time. I mean, it's a big difference when you bury more of your kids than you see survive. Yeah. And how you see the world, and how many of your spouses that you may marry and die and marry and die, versus when we worry about you know when the new iPhone's coming out. Right. Well, just like just like physically, how comfortable men don't work as hard. The same yeah. thing applies intellectually and existentially. That when we when we allow the distractions to sort of pacify us. Yeah. Then we're not we're not driven. There's to find there's, an answer, right. right? There's no drive to want to <laughs> face these Netflix. things because you don't well, have to. I saw a meme the other day that actually, and I'm pro meme, but this one actually, I was like, oh, that's a good point. It had a picture of a study, 
So leather chair, you know, I'm going to have cases, one of those one of these days. Goal. Some gray hair. And then spliced next to it was a man cave decked out in all matching whatever the sports team was, colors Ugh. and everything. That is a good point. And it said, why did we replace the study with the man cave? Mm. Right. And, you know, Very good point. I, we've been watching documentaries and stuff because we're nerds about that, but it's very easy, like but I said, did work in about an hour and a half of a football game today. To watch Netflix instead of reading a book. Yeah. And you and I went and bought, this guy bought a literal shopping cart of books at the half price you get book sale. <laughs> I'm, I'm bad. I have yet to even really start on any of the small stacks that I bought. Do you have a study in you in the loft apartment? There's an area. He has okay. his own separate library. Okay. It's got one of those rolling ladders. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like the like the library on Harry Potter. Just this huge. What's Harry Potter? Freaking. Put down your wand. Yeah. <laughs> Put your wand back in your pants. But yeah, I mean, it's we are totally distracted now, and I'm as guilty as anybody. I bought oh. that damn Red Dead Redemption game because Brad's been Professor Plum's been bugging me about it. I enjoy <laughs> it, Professor Plum. It's fun, new name. But every time I sit down and play that, is time I'm two hours. Well, not not that, but it's time I'm not reading an article on how to make Nitsky. How to, yeah, how to. Well, and, I mean, we're constantly. I mean, I feel like even. Even the way that we are about being intellectually curious about stuff. Bi-curious. Uh, try. Try that we're, um Human nature is such, it definitely infects us, too, that we're, you know, we're prone to take the low-hanging fruit. Sure. No, absolutely. If it's easier. And there's so much low-hanging fruit <laughs> out there. Well, more than ever before. Yeah. Right. That it's, you know, we're not in the Grapes of Wrath generation to no. where... We're, like you said before, like the struggle, just like the the original quote that you were talking about, that there's something that the struggle breeds in a man that doesn't come by any other means. Yes. That, you know, there's there's certainly internal motivation, but... That's limited. That's limited. And it, it's... You need fire to be forged, well, you know. You, know, you to, need to, the struggle. To here lately, I've been making the kids set a... A goal they wanted, you know, they wanted some little app or something. I'm like, okay, well, if you do this chore every day without me having to tell you for this amount of time, then I'll get you that app. Has it worked? Yeah. Did it? Yeah. More so with the youngest. Really? Yeah. My oldest, she's gung ho for like day and a half. Yeah. And stuff like that, and then it tends to peter out. And that, that's how the boys are. Yeah. But the youngest, she's stuck to it, and. I was explaining to her. My youngest, she don't give a shit. Well, um, <laughs> well, there's a there's a very different mindset between walking a tightrope with a safety net or without. Yes. Yeah. But I was trying to explain to her if you work for something and you get it, that means more to you than if it's just handed to you. Right. And very Ronnie Reagan of you. Well. I'm very bustling. It's trickled down. It's trickled down over at the Montblanc house. <laughs> They're very supply side. Although it's also, you know, I'm pretty much a. It's a communist thing where I'm the the full mass. I mean, not like Marxist communist angles, but more like you know Stalin, North Korea. Yeah. Where I do all the work. And He's quizzing them daily on Milton's yeah. economic <laughs> plan. All right, let's talk about Friedman now. Tell me again about the high tide. You know, economics is something that I do not know. I know the basics, but I it's, don't get it. it's not something that I have ever delved deep into. I don't I don't like the subject. I don't I, I try reading some of the, you know, right, pioneers of something I'm like I just That sounds like a great book, The Pioneers of Economics. The Theory behind certain principles, and it's like, uh, I mean, I really think ugh. it's just the, it, it's just uh, philosophy. It is, it, you know, yeah. stated in other terms. Yeah, right, it is. I mean, it, it's it's that they've cloaked a practical application that's right. around. It's just pragmatic yeah. philosophy. Yeah, no, yeah. if you no listen doubt. to Milt Friedman talk about economics or somebody that really under, you know, understands it or has, and he's just talking philosophy. Yeah, 
I mean, but again, I mean, just philosophy in general, it's it's not something that's you know easily absorbed no. without some kind of practical examples. Well, and then it always comes back to textbook theory versus field practice. All right. Or, now, or now when you have computer models, right? Versus what actual, actual field application, and it, that can it, it can. Not shake out. Right. And you can apply these models all you want, but they're models extrapolated off of and some oftentimes biased information to start well, and, it. And the models and the theories, too, oftentimes forget the most important part, and that's the human the heart, factor. The heart. Yeah, the human factor of the of the whole principle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, the difference between math and people, you know, is that you have to account for the emotion of things right. to where if you're just looking at things statistically, they make sense on paper or probability of things like mm-hmm. that, which makes sense on paper, but they they occur within the context of a time much longer than the time that you're around for also. Right. Oh, yeah. So if you say, well, yes, this is philosophically the best course to take because the probability statistically is it's greater that the most there's the most chances there's a greater chance that the greater good is going to be done taking this course, mm-hmm. but that doesn't guarantee How long that is the that failures course? are not all going to happen in the time that you're alive. Right. So uh, this might have five failures. Of course, two might have a hundred failures. Yeah. But if you experience the five, yeah. to you it feels like a hundred percent of the time it's a failure. Right. So that that line that you're following reminds me and i know i've read a lot more science fiction than you guys have uh have you ever read montage isaac asimov's foundation no premise of that, i've read more isaac McRahi. nice the the premise behind that is that there's this this scientist that's figured out and i can't remember what the name of it is but he's able to extrapolate the probability to maintain humanity without it turning into barbarism, but his plan goes out thousands and thousands of years. And so he sets the ball in motion to create this, what he calls a foundation, that's going to end up ruling the galaxy instead of it just turning into barbarism of warlords and stuff. But his, it's a long game, and he's You're right. the probability in every few generations a new message drops, and it's the next guidepost, but mm. you can't see it from one spot because uh, it's such a long... Yeah. Well, we're certainly not living in the era, the era of delayed gratification. No, no not at all. I mean, no no generation lives in that in a true sense, but it's, it's exponentially become worse. Yeah, we are, and again, I've said a ton, guilty as anybody, but absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the idea, like, used to be... If you had to wait for a catalog, and then you picked through that catalog, mm-hmm. and then you ordered something, and it would be weeks and weeks. Yeah, a damn drone dropping it in my front yard now. You know, we we couldn't find a Halloween costume that one of the kids wanted, and we were running out of time. So Mrs. Bonneblanc ordered it, and it was to here the next day. Yeah. You know, I mean... You can't. And I, when we were kids, we went, well, tough shit. You, can be that you can't shit. find this. Well, you're not going to be that. You can be a pirate, right? Or well, hobo. Think, <laughs> think about how it's affected just basic things like communication too. Like think about the difference between how two people communicate via letter versus via phone call, then versus via email versus or our, text. Our text. Yeah. That's right. Like. Think about the. When was diff- the last time you wrote a letter and mailed it to somebody? Not counting work. I'm talking. It's probably college. Yeah. I because my a- grandfather would write me, and I would write him back. Oh yeah. You know, but that I mean, I found a notepad with some letters I wrote to some girl that I've never sent, which was really embarrassing from college. I threw that son of a bitch away. <laughs> Man, if we could get our hands on that. Where'd you put it? Where'd you put it? Burned it. Okay. Because I knew that some son of a bitch would be, oh, this is good stuff. <laughs> uh, hey, listen to this, Ty. <laughs> <laughs> the Gustav There's Montalban an episode. <laughs> you know, we were talking about Hunter S. Thompson a while back, and I mentioned that I had a, a book. I need to find it and give it to JJ. He wanted to see it. But he carbon copied all of the letters he wrote. Yeah. Mm. And he typed them all. 
And it's a big deal back then, the correspondence. You know, this book was like two inches thick, and it was like volume one. I never yeah. saw the volume two, but it was everything he wrote because he kept them all filed. Yeah. And that was, you know, yeah, a bit. I, I can't imagine wanting to carbon copy everything. I'm scared that all the shit we write to one another on the course of the day is, yeah. is being scooped up by the NSA. Oh, I'm sure. I will never be able to be president if grabbing by the P is uh, a roadblock on that, guys. Oh, I mean, you drove through that thing driving 80. I'm just going just gonna to let you all know that some shit may if come that's out. that's the bar, you're fucked. Uh, you know, if we get past that, then, hey, it's, gun, it's great guns. Uh, I think it was when Clinton was president, Bill. Yes, the because uh, we don't know when this is going to come out and the, the outcome is going to be uh, set. So the, I remember Dennis Miller doing this sketch, you know, talking about everybody making a big deal about Bill smoking weed, you know, and he's saying he didn't inhale, you know, but they're still making a big deal about that. He's like, you know, it doesn't matter. In twenty years, you know, the guy running for president is going to be like. No, I didn't shoot the heroin. Somebody stepped right. on it, and then right. you know. I mean, it's going to be the it's going to be the dick pick. I, I do not envy our children for the coming next generation of, of poli- politicians or anybody where everybody's going to have something, and maybe it'll yeah. become nonchalant. Like, oh, that's just how life goes. So far, it hasn't proven that case. Mm-hmm. You know, there's time and time again where some dumbass frat kid sings some racist song or something, and you know that kid's short-term life is ruined how it's going to shake out in the long term i don't know but everybody's going to have a dick pic or a pussy pic i think the way it's moving too or a pic of them doing a jello shot off of a stripper's navel i mean i think i think it's moving more and more towards i mean we'll see if it's it could certainly swing back the other direction but i mean we joke about it now with like the kanye 2020 and all that but i think it's it's moving more towards because of the and a lot of it well deserved the lack of respect for politicians and you know political culture and everything. It's moving more towards the celebrity culture that I could easily see it. You know things continue to go that direction by the time our kids are grandkids that it will be all about celebrity. So we'll have President Camacho in 2060. Yeah, uh, he's throwing it out there for, for closer than that. President Cuban. Right, Mark. But I'm I'm going even further that even further along than that. Yeah. That not just you know because that would still fall in the celebrity, but also businessman. Right. I'm talking pure celebrity. Right. President Kardashian. Like it, well, yeah. That like it really is just as a popularity contest. Yeah. Because the feeling is that look, these people that are supposed the to be electoral experts, college is going to be reduced to Blake Shelton, that guy from that. Uh, who else is on The Voice? I don't know. You tell me, buddy. I don't know. Adam Levine. Or yeah, that guy. Yeah. Fucking know. Maroon 5. Yeah, yeah man. I mean, All I could I think was Blink-182. I, I could couldn't. recite the whole catalog. No. Gonna have Simon. But I mean, in president. some ways it makes sense. Because I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I mean, we don't change the Constitution, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> it could happen. For the people of the younger generation... They have every right to say that, look, these people that are supposed to be experts in this can't get their shit together. Yeah. And they're wrought with scandal, not just your normal political scandal, but like, you know, they're doing the same stupid shit as the reality TV people are doing. Yeah. Let's at least put in there somebody that we know and that we like. Yeah. And it, I mean, it could, it, it sounds ludicrous, but. We're living in a pretty ludicrous political world as it is. Absolutely. There's no, I mean, there's no telling where it will go from here. I mean, I think it's either going to swing one direction or the other. <laughs> as Heavy tries to semi-quietly open a... Boy, that was about as quiet as a half-opened bag of Lay's potato chips. How's the caramel marshmallow? I didn't know it had marshmallow in it. KJ would be I, so I don't mind marshmallow, you. I just wasn't expecting it. I just caramel. He wasn't expecting when he bit into that chocolate. He doesn't mind marshmallows. No, I don't mind the white center. I, like I just wasn't expecting it. We're I enjoying like watching theory, you though. eat candy at the moment. I wish everybody could see me eat candy. I, I, I do like that topic, that theory. Can't don't be go ahead and keep eating, too. <laughs> Dunder Mifflin Kruger, was that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's close enough. 
I mean, don't don't you see that though? Like, and it, it's easy to absolutely. It's easy to judge seeing it in others. Like most things, it's very difficult to turn it inwardly and think, right. how many things am I overconfident in my competence about, and then how does that affect my life versus the things that, um, to what extent am I comfortable being uncertain about and actually willing to become competent in, and right. then how different would that affect my life? I, I can certainly see that I've gone through... Like I said, a phase of that where when you're young, I think it's more apt to it. But I, probably and, about 30, I was probably rolling on that plateau. Uh, yeah, well, I, think it, I mean, it has a societal impact, too, because those people who are, when you're in the stage of feeling overconfident about things you're not really confident in, the other thing that's happening around you is that confident people influence other people. Yes. So when... These people that are overconfident in things that they're really not competent in, they're also influencing those around them. Sean Hannity. <laughs> I give up. He's I mean, so I proud of himself. Up. I would say that that age from... Let's explore that uh, that fixation you have on Sean Hannity a little bit. No, we're just talking about people that aren't as smart as they think they are. Just We have no that. shortage of those people. Yeah. Present so, company excluded. <laughs> right. The uh, I would say from that no age offense. of... Yeah, no <laughs> offense. No but, offense. We got to get Bob Hayes in that Ring of Honor. Probably from about age twenty-six to about thirty-three, thirty-four is when you're really feeling your oats and think you're really freaking smart and in whatever path you're going. And you don't uh, know what you don't know. Yeah, and I, say I use that phrase a lot in my dealings with clients. It's one of the most dangerous things. <laughs> yes, a lot. I mean. It it really is one of the most dangerous things personally and culturally, I think. Mm-hmm. Because it's that, you know, it's the it's the silent sin that gets you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the odorless gas that kills you. I like those loud sins personally. And the loud gas. No, I don't like that, but the loud sins. It's it's not knowing. Not you know, sins of the flesh. That's the, that's the best when it's loudest. <laughs> yeah, those are usually not so silent. Uh the uh, you know, and two, it's silent but deadly. talking about that from not into twenties to early thirties that overconfidence. You know, a lot of that just comes with experience with age. But there's plenty of fifty and sixty oh, yeah. year olds who are still at that level. A very famous okay. quote from Jimi Hendrix was, "Are you experienced? Have you re- ever really been experienced?" Well, I have. He was. Yes. Jimmy Jimmy was a great man, and now he's dead. Yeah, it's been dead a long time. So what does he yeah. know? What? Yeah, he couldn't even. How play, old was he when he died? He couldn't even play his guitar on the on the right side. Right. Was he like twenty? I don't eight? know. Do I need to look that up? I don't know. He was in his twenties. If I don't look it up, Cody Allen will tweet me how old he was. I'm. I don't even know if he was twenty eight. I was thinking more like twenty six. Really? What's that translating to years? I mean, into months? It's like seven. Dog years. Quick, do the math. Is that what he died? 69? 69, 68, whatever it takes. 70. 70. Damn. Man, he was that old? <laughs> he didn't look it. Uh, Kept himself up, didn't he? He did. Hell of a uh, he was 27. 27. So good, good job. We split the difference there. Agree to disagree. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> when in Rome. <laughs> Quid pro quo. XCI Belenner. <laughs> Did you have more to talk about with your loud sinning? No, no. Maybe another candy you wanted to eat? <laughs> no. You got good. anything else to say about Sean Hannity? Nah. Uh, any more office jokes? No. Can't think of a thing. I think he's. I think he had an insulin spike and all the blood's going to his belly. Blood to the belly. All the blood's in my belly. Don't really think that's the way that works. I think that his belly may have gravity. The gravity. I think it's gravity that's holding that no, mic to his chin. My belly probably does have a gravitational pull. <laughs> There's something we can agree on. Yeah, I think. we're all just orbiting around it. Yeah. I've been having some thoughts about orbiting and things. Yeah, you mean go into those? Sure. If we ha- and I, I don't know a lot about cosmology nor geology. These are not fields that I've ever done any. Grand but research into. Don't know much biology. I really don't like this song. <laughs> I was trying to... But that theme. 
Uh, It's fantastic. If the idea is that we had some type of singularity and everything starts expanding outward from this one point, and then we've got all this dust, and then this dust aggregates to form galaxies and solar systems and planets, if this dust is made out of specific individual atoms of different elements, how did any of these actual elements aggregate to be any consistent high density of any particular atom in a planetary structure. So we have gold deposits, which are maybe not 100% pure, but often pure. We have ores, Mm -hmm. but we have elements that are concentrated in the planetary structures, not just Earth. Right. How in the world did that happen how did, they, how did they get concentrated? How did they get concentrated? I think you're gold. inherently arguing for a design. Well, I'm asking from a from a point of how did this happen? Well, think of, I mean, also that, we'll think of the formation of a rock. In, uh, let's take a gold mine or a, a gold seam, for example, in the Sierra Nevadas. Now, that is a, from a geological standpoint, Here's some overcompensating here. A still a building mountain system because of abduction. It's it's still he's doing, he's doing hand gestures right. as he does this, and so not with the most confidence. So obviously he's not full on the spectrum. Well, hold on. Let me think here. How would that happen? No, I'm not editing this silence out. I mean, I think what you're what you're thinking of is. The placement that it's in right now is how it's always been. No, not at all. But from, how, from from or from the time the Earth was made, the but, placement that it's but in. But if I have a, an open space that has a multitude of disparate element atoms just floating around, randomly floating around, randomly floating around in some type of you know mixture mm-hmm. that. How do they all get concentrated? How why would they aggregate? How do they aggregate into concentration? When as a general rule, nature doesn't get more complex. Atrophy is the natural tendency. Well, let me look here. Let's open up the King James Version. <laughs> well, I'm not just looking for a, a creationist answer. I'm looking for a, a, yeah, a, thought. a, a, a thought. scientific thought about it. Man, I, that I don't know. Because... You know, I had two I certainly, classes of geology, and that was it. And, and this goes to cosmology. I mean, it's not just a geology right. aspect of it. It filters down to geology. Right. But, and I, you know, I make no bones about it. I believe that there's a God with a some level of intelligent, you know, some level of intelligent design where there's a complexity to the universe that randomness, I have a hard time with. Right. I mean, even just the randomness of a single cell yes, absolutely. is enough to right. overwhelm you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. expand beyond that. To, I mean, anyway, but there's, there's a pattern. And, you know, I believe that there is a, there is a greater power in this universe. And in multi-universes, maybe, I don't know, but there's more to it than just that. But I'm also a man of science. I mean, right. I have to reconcile these two things. Right. And... I know there's not always an answer either on science or faith, because mm-hmm. obviously where we are now, we act, and I think this is a hubris of the modern age, and maybe every age has been like this, we think we've got it figured out. Well, yeah, this goes back to the not knowing what you don't know. But yeah. Exactly. But I'm sure that during the Enlightenment, there were people that think, we got this shit figured yeah. out. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. absolutely wrong on many levels, and it goes I back mean, to... something appearing as a wave or a particle, depending on its context, right. was like, a, that was not something that was even found. No. And, you know, and then we go back to the Renaissance, where great thinkers thought they had it figured out, and some didn't, you know, some realized it, but we, again, don't know what we don't know. And I just saw an article, I didn't delve into it, that was now questioning what the standard cosmology of the rapidly expanding universe. You know, there's been, Mm -hmm. that's what we've thought for this pattern in time, and now people are saying, well, maybe that's not right. Maybe maybe we don't understand it. Right. No matter if you take science or you take faith or you take religion, all of it takes faith to a certain level. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, when you get into cosmology and, I mean, 
which um, the physics behind that blows my freaking mind. And and I've often wondered, could you imagine Einstein coming up with this theory and this thought and being the only freaking person in the world that understood it? It reminds me of that Handsome Family song about, uh, I can't remember which one it is, about Einstein shivered when he saw that time was water. Do you remember that song? Oh, what was that one? And about the aunt that forgot to feed her kids yeah. and wrote poems to Jimmy Carter. Um, Found that song. Anyway. But, but, I mean, yeah. just, uh, just think about that. The burden you, you, of that. You, you figure something out. <clears throat> But you can't explain it to anybody because nobody else, or you try to explain it to, to people, but nobody gets it. Maybe you he know? was called parenthood. <laughs> and it's like, wow, that drive most people insane. Maybe it did. Maybe it did. Yeah, I, but I, I mean, saw a documentary about Einstein and how he uh, tried to get Meg Ryan to uh, date. Tim Robbins. <laughs> yeah, that's like I saw that. It's really, really informative. Heavy shaking his head in disdain. I watched that right after the documentary on C.S. Lewis with the lion. Mm. Also very good. Very yeah. good. Have you delved into much C.S. Lewis? Oh, yeah. I figured you had. Man, one of my there. old Sunday school classes, we read a Great lot thing. of C.S. Lewis. Screw tape letters. Screw tape letters. The Three Loves. Yeah, four loves. Four loves. Oh, he's got a fourth. Yeah. Three, lo- three. Four <laughs> pointer. He only had three when I read it. Yeah. <laughs> he must have added another one. It's, this is the second edition. Bonus content. <laughs> what were some other ones we read? Well, that, I can't remember. A lot of that correspondence bet- and relationship like between him and Tolkien. You yeah, know, I was, was just thinking about that. Fascinating. I mean, you talk about a collection of thinkers yeah. in one place. And, you know, Tolkien was a – I wrote – Bragging montage. I wrote research paper on Christian symbolism in the Lord of the Rings a long, long time ago. In college or high school? High school. Really? Yep. In our uh, head of the class class. Ah, yes. Well, it was interesting before they made this is before they made the movies. When only yeah, I was going to say yeah, I wouldn't have even known Lord of the Rings <laughs> back then. Yeah, I started reading it in junior high, so I don't know what the hell you were doing. I was I think that same year I wrote my paper on good times. <laughs> Man, if we could write, if we could have gotten away with that sort of thing, oh, we would have. There's no doubt because I could have made the case for some black post-colonialism Jesus. imagery uh, that was with underlying Lewis, several of those episodes, especially with screw tape letters. What was interesting, and to, and to me, this is when you really test people's faith and you get them really questioning their faith and, and screw tape letters was really good with this and, and the time period that it came out was world war Two, or it took place world war Two, and you know england and you have people going through hell not knowing if we're gonna die tonight yeah if we're gonna wake up in the morning you talk about starting to question faith and and yeah, screw tape letters was gave that real good contrasting content on both sides. You know, it was it was an interesting perspective. Well, you're talking about earlier with the you know a lot of the existential questions that we have to face. That if y'all haven't read the Great Divorce, you no, know, I haven't read that. Lewis, one of my favorites, if not, not my one. favorites of his. You should read that, you and did? then we could discuss. I mean, you talk about facing head on some of the existential questions. That you know, we try so hard not to, and I mean, just in his writing style, it does the imagery and everything is really brings it to life. But uh, I think that's one of his best. I mean, he's a great agree or disagree with his philosophical or moral, you know, religious stance on things. Mm-hmm. He's, there's no debating, he's a fantastic writer, yeah. That agree or disagree, and I think one of us said that when we were talking about Hitchens tweeting back and forth, another recently. great writer. I think, in general. And I don't know if it was ever better, but I think in general one of our society problems is that most people can't read something that they don't agree with. Yeah. Oh, we're they, very confirmation bias driven. They do not want to. Well, they don't want to. That would require questioning your own beliefs. Well, that yeah, that's part of that whole Dunning yeah. Kruger effect right. too. Is that right. you have that top-down thinking, or, or you know, or, you, or you believe something, and then you look for things that will validate that right. belief. Or and it's, it's sometimes it. maybe it's not even a 
that, it's maybe that I I know you're absolutely wrong. Yeah. I don't even have to bother because you're right. overconfident you're right. Right. So there you yeah. go. I think that's a good little uh, cherry on top of our yeah. discussion there. Well, we've hit our time again, so another hard-hitting, serious episode for the most part. Serious. We may not have any listeners after this one. That's all right. Pack that pipe, stroke that greyhound, sit back that leather chair, and just let it all wash over you. JJ's pipe's going to be packed a <laughs> little gonna, bit. I was wondering where you were going with I that. Are you so talking too. to JJ? That's not... Uh, it's not condone that kind of behavior. That's not rum-soaked tobacco. You know, that's <laughs> not going to be that. Uh, well, we would love to hear... Fine, black and mild. Yeah. Just like I like my women. Yeah. Sit down the hooch. Let us hear from you. I know we've kind of hit you with some serious topics. We'll get back to uh, wacky, zany emails. We've still got a bunch, so don't lose hope. I know we got one from Tom and Jay and another one from Cody Allen, maybe another one out there, so... We will get to you. It'll probably be December now, but don't lose hope. We'll put something in your stocking for you. Thanks. Adios. Bye. There's a more poetic and I think more accurate way to say it. It's quite literally true that we are stardust. In the highest exalted way, one can use that phrase. I wouldn't go around spouting that shit I was you. People around here don't think that way. I don't think that way. And world-class championship wrestling. I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Sally. Good night from Dallas, Texas.